can I have the shit? Welcome back to Lyrics for Lunch, the show whose favorite topic is perhaps American Idiots. And we're a little on the nose today with this one. Oh, man. Hello, Aviv. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I'm Lindsay Tucker. Joining me today and every week is my co-host, Aviv Rubenstein. Hello. This is the show that tells the... So- the this is the show that tells you the stories you can't forget. No. Stories you can't unhear from the songs you can't forget wish you would forget yeah we like we like wrote it down once and we just have never done it right since the the songs you love and the stories you can't forget can't Mm -hmm. unhear can't unhear any of those things all those things take your pick let's move on as as usual (laughs) extremely prepared Lindsay, your background looks a little different right now so where where are you? I'm at my mom's in Virginia. She had a hip replacement, so I came down here to just be with her and help her out a bit. Speedy recovery to Lindsay's mom, friend of the Thanks. show, Lindsay's mom. Thank you. How's your dad? I heard he was on the hell, uh, hip replacement docket he, as well. He is also on the hip replacement docket. There's a lot of uh, things that he has to do. He has to like go get checked out by a cardiologist and all this other stuff. And so, yeah, he's he's doing okay. I talked to him this morning and, you know, just live, live in the dream in Pennsylvania. So what are we talking about today, Lindsay? Today, I've been told that we're talking about Green Day and the song American Idiot. Yes, today we're talking about Green Day, one of the most popular rock bands on the planet, with 14 studio albums, over 91 million records sold, a Broadway stage adaptation. Green Day is one of the best-selling bands, not just in rock, but in the history of popular music. And they're horrible. Are they? I don't like Green Day, but I did when I was in fifth grade. So can I tell you a quick story about when I was in fifth grade? Just let me read my next sentence. (laughs) What's your history with Green Day, Lindsay? Oh, thank you for asking. I will tell you. <laughs> um, when I was in fifth grade, I had a crush on this guy, uh, Joe Oshaleski, if you're listening. Friend of the show, Joe <laughs> Oshaleski. <laughs> haven't haven't talked to him in probably 30, nah, 20 some odd years. Anywho, um, he asked me if I knew who the king of rock and roll was. And I was like, yeah, Elvis. And he was like, no. It's Billy Joe Armstrong. It's Billy Joe Armstrong. Holy shit. And I was like, who's that? And he was like, you haven't heard of Green Day? And I was like, no. Um, and then then I don't know if it was coincidence or like that was the day that Green Day like took over PST. Did you listen to PST? I did listen to PST. 97.5. I, I was just at home in Pennsylvania and I, st- I listened to PST. <laughs> it's 94.5 now. But yes, oh. <laughs> 97.5 PST was like the pop station when we were growing up in the Philadelphia, New Jersey area. And then it... It was um, like all... Tr- all- it was everything, pop. right? But like, yeah, when... But when, yeah, Britney Spears was on it. It was yes. like... It was pop. Okay. Uh, but now it's like unabashed. Like there's not a single rock song with a guitar on it on oh, PST there's not. now. No. It's all pop. 
Okay, so at the time, in fifth grade, PST was the station to listen to. Correct. And, like, call in for the top five at nine. Oh, my God. My sister called in every night. I have a PST story <laughs> that might not make the show. Okay. Well, anyway. Uh, it's about the time that Joe told me about Billy Joel Armstrong that, that Green Day started uh, taking over the airwaves of PST. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was with Dookie. Um, and then I asked my dad if I could have the album and then he got it for me, but then he immediately took it away. Sure. Um, and that album had a basket case. One of the greatest selling. (laughs) No, you're right. One of the greatest selling rock albums of all time. Um, we're going to talk a lot about Dookie. She, she screams in silence. Uh, Uh, long view when I come around. Yes. So we're talking 994. Dookie comes out in 994. Okay. Yeah, so I was in fifth grade. Yeah. And that's my story. I love that album super hard. And <laughs> So why do you um, hate them now? It's because Joe Ostarello was like, I, Their you. subsequent album sucked. Okay. So part of what we're going to talk about today is why. Right? Because I agree with you. Okay. I, <laughs> I, I have a very similar upbringing with Green Day. Green Day was... Um, at least to my memory, along with Nirvana, like the bands that were corrupting the children. And so I, uh, it took me a while to like be able to listen to them because I think my parents were like not, um, super jazzed about me like wanting to. And they were like a little too irreverent. I was like more of a rule follower when I was in third and fourth grade. So. A little, a little bit more reverent than I was comfortable with at that time. And then by the time, like, The Offspring, Pretty Fly for a White Guy, um, that era, which uh, coincided with Nimrod, the the one, the Green Day album with Time of Your Life, good parentheses, good riddance on it, um, that's when I really got into them. So um, we'll, 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 we'll get there. We're going to do... We're going to start at the end this week. Lindsay, I regret to inform you that Green Day has gone woke. Green Day has gone woke. Yes. You're this year. Tell me what that means. <laughs> I, I, I will. <laughs> this year at Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve, in support of their new album, Saviors, which came out this week as we're recording, Green Day changed one of the lyrics to the title track of their Grammy winning album from 20 years ago. So let's take a quick. Listen to what's going on. Okay, so instead of I'm not a part of a redneck agenda, which is the line in the original version of American Idiot, Green Day has changed the the lyrics to I'm not a part of a MAGA agenda. How could something like this happen, Lindsay? How, how could, could something like this happen? How could a band that's been on the radio for 30 years be harboring such anti-Republican, nay, anti-American views? Your sarcasm is killing me. And it sent Americans into a flurry. A flurry, I tell you. Oh, a snowflake flurry. Yes. So Kevin Sorbo, yes, that Kevin Sorbo, who played Hercules on syndicated daytime television, wrote on Twitter, punk rock is pro-big government. Laura Loomer, conservative pundit and self-proclaimed feisty Jewess, wrote that Green Day were, quote, losers. No. Jack Posobiec, Posobiec, I've seen his name written so many times, I've never pronounced it and I don't care to learn. 
who's also like a like a Twitter asshole, um, wrote Green Day ain't said one word throughout the Obama years and not one word about Biden bought and sold more like green paid, but P A Y E D. Fantastic. Yeah. Twitter personality and someone who Elon Musk legitimately wants to impress, Cat Turd 2, <laughs> writes, quote, nothing says punk rock like government bootlicking, millionaire sellouts playing on ABC. And not to be outdone by Cat Turd 2, the richest man in the world, Elon Musk, weighed in himself saying, Green Day goes from raging against the machine to milk toastedly raging for it. Milk toast. Again. Again. The milk toast. The milk toast is we're back. <laughs> and Fox News, well, this is what Fox News had to say. I just never thought that I would see a band that's supposed to be, you know, against everything raging for the machine. Oh my because god. That's what they do when regurgitate they talk it. Smack just regurgitate it, Kathy. About, about regular people who, who are being crushed. So keep on raging for the machine, fellas. Keep on. <laughs> Dick Clark. So yes, the 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 party line is now. Oh man, they're raging for the machine, which is like different band. It's a different fucking band, but okay, sure. So as has Tom Morello spoken out about this? <laughs> like keep keep my band's name out your fucking mouth. No, yes. they just they just broke up again. So I think they've got a bigger fish to fry, bigger vegan tofu fish to fry. <laughs> Um, so as intrepid investigators, we here on Lyrics for Lunch are going to do a deep dive onto how something like this could happen. How, Lindsay? How could a band... How could a band just speak out against the politics they don't agree with? How could a band from the East Bay, California, lose their way so significantly and say something so hurtful about a former president? Just because you don't like the fucking MAGA trolls doesn't mean you're <laughs> for big government. Wake the fuck up, Sally. I mean, right. So, okay. F yes. First, let's take a listen to our song of the week, American Idiot. When did this song come out? 2004. You really don't know anything about this song? I mean, I remember this being out when we were young, but it, it sounds like old. <laughs> I mean, it's 20 years old now. After we graduated high school. I graduated high After school. After you graduated high school, yeah. So what do, you, what do you remember about this song? It was a Green Day song. Okay. End of story. End of story. <laughs> Was this like part of the Bush election? Was it someone's campaign song? Campaign song? John Kerry. Yeah, John Kerry went the Green Day route. 
Billy Joe Armstrong was born in Oakland, California in 1972, youngest of six children, his mother, Ollie Jackson, and father, Andrew Armstrong. Uh, he grew up in Rodeo, California, or Rodeo, uh, which is also near San Francisco. And his mother worked at as a waitress at Rod's Hickory Pit in El Cerrito, California. And his father was a jazz musician and truck driver for Safeway. So he was kind of in a musical family, but real blue-collar stuff. Kerrang! said that Billy Joe was like the first blue-collar punk, which is like demonstrably not true. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, Kerrang! Um, when Billy was five years old, I don't know if he... I don't know if it's like a Billy Joe, like you have to say Billy Joe, or you just can say Billy, but I'm just going to say Billy from time to time. How about Beej? When BJ... <laughs> When Billy was five years old, his elementary school teacher thought he had a good singing voice, so she recommended that he record a song on the Bay Area label Fiat Records. And so this is Billy Joe Armstrong's first song. It's called Look for Love. How does your teacher just like recommend you do an album on a record label? That's a good fucking question that I will answer. Okay. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Look for love. This is like some fucking people's temple shit. It is. Like if you told me that this kid died via Kool-Aid, sorry, Flavor-Aid, I would believe you. When everything seems to go wrong, and you need somebody strong, with a smile Also, all kids are cute, but this is not exceptional singing work. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> This song. This is a real song. Who can fucking say? He didn't. Look for love. Look for love. There should have been a spot for that in Annie. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so this was this Fiat Records was run by a woman named Mrs. Fiataroni, who was a vocal teacher. And so Billy began taking voice lessons in secret from her so that none of the other kids would bully him in school. So I think that this like rec- like record label is just her like basically her vocal school right is like you get to record a little track as a part of this, these voice lessons or whatever like dorney park what you never recorded a song at dorney park fucking no oh you like go into the recording booth and you do a song it's basically karaoke but you get to take it home on a tape i i'm i think it's probably similar I don't know if this okay. was ever for sale, um, but this is Billy Joe and the rest of Green Day on Howard Stern talking about Look for Love. You, you took singing lessons, but you took them in secret because you were afraid the kids would in the neighborhood would beat you up. Yeah. But yet, what a brilliant thing. What, did, did they help you? Yeah, absolutely. Mrs. Fiatteroni, she, they, I mean, she, she just showed me how to um, carry a tune and kind of know how to use my voice and use like 
my diaphragm or whatever. Yeah. And then uh, she, yeah, I mean, she was great. And uh, yeah, and then, but she, it was a mu- small music school in, in Pinole, California called Fiat Music. And so I would go and sing like in convalescent hospitals and veterans hospitals. And I would, uh, you know, I had gigs all the time and I'd wear like tuxedos and, uh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, you, it was pretty fun. You would go in as a solo guy and play like a, an old age home. Yeah, yeah. And I would. Wow. It's like sometimes I would <laughs> sing like uh, songs like Satin Doll or Chicago, and I would I would like it'd be kind of funny to see like a uh, like a nine year old being like a lounge singer or something like that. Billy's dad died of esophageal cancer in September of 1982 when Billy was 10 years old, which any Green Day fan will know is the premise of the song, Wake Me Up When September Ends. It's about his father's death. Yeah, I thought it was just like super meta to make you want to wake up when the song ended. (laughs) Well, I mean, sure. Um, It is not uh, uncommon for people to not to misinterpret what that song is about, especially because of the video. We don't need to listen to Wake Me Up When September Ends, but um, you know, I used to, I traveled for a while in Southeast Asia, and for whatever reason, that is like the most popular busker song. So every busker in Bangkok and Kuala Lumpur and in, in Cambodia would sing Wake Me Up When September Ends as a part of their set, which is like, very weird it must be weird to have buskers sing a song about your dead dad but like i digress he became interested in punk rock uh after being introduced to the genre by his older brothers and I feel so like if i wrote a song in tribute to my dead parent and people were singing it in street corners all across the world i would feel great you'd feel great i okay i i it's it's such a vulnerable thing Right, the the song is like about his his grief and wanting to skip to the part where he feels better, and I feel like hearing it on the street might be re-triggering, but whatever. Do you think he's hanging out in street corners in KL? Maybe not. <laughs> um, so uh, also at the age of ten, he met this dude named Mike Pritchard the high in the high school cafeteria and they immediately bonded over their love of music mike had a bit of a rough upbringing he was adopted as a child and his father was often his like adopted father was often away obtaining his degree while his mother stayed at home to care for him and his sister and uh mike was really good in school but he missed classes for a lot of various illnesses that were attributed to his biological mother's drug use he would be like what you would cons- what you would call a crack baby, um, which is like you know much like welfare queen, kind of overblown by conservatives. But yeah, he was he yeah, was like, like a I kinda- thought Ronald Reagan uh, made that up. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> so he was a sickly kid, um, and do- and attri- that's attributed to his his biological mother's- his crack baby status. His crack baby status. Um, after an argument between Mike's parents led to a police the police getting involved mike's parents divorced his mother and sister moved to rodeo california and he stayed with his dad hold on but is it rodeo isn't it don't so, they get made fun of if you call it like wasn't this like in pretty woman but that's rodeo drive i don't know what if whether it's rodeo or rodeo california which is like okay. in the in the bay area oh right it's very far away very far away one. right 
Um, but Mike stayed with his dad in El Sobrante, and he missed his mother, and he eventually moved in with her in in Rodeo. Rodeo. Previously, people described him as bright and fearless, but he became sullen and withdrawn after his parents divorced. And what instrument does he play in Green Day? <laughs> Jumping right to the end. Uh, the bass. I knew it. I knew it. He has a real bass player background. <laughs> real bass. Well, considering there's just three of them. <laughs> so Mike and Billy are best friends. So much so that after Mike attended Catholic school for his freshman year of high school, he lobbied to transfer to Pinole Valley High School, where Billy had also recently transferred. So they did both. Did Billy go to Catholic school? Billy did not go to Catholic school, but Billy went to some public Beach. school and was like, oh, I want to go to this school instead. Mike did the same thing, and so they wind up in high school together. Mike's family's also had financial troubles, so like Adam Schlesinger from last week, Mike worked as a chef in a seafood restaurant. No, Schlesinger was a piano player. Well, Mike worked in a seafood restaurant, I guess, with with Adam Schlesinger. I feel like this is just telling me that I need to get a job in a seafood restaurant. I don't disagree. Of even the future, throw in that uh, freecreditreport.com song again. <laughs> They say a man should always dress for the job he wants. So why am I dressed up like a pirate in this restaurant? Yeah, I thought we were doing that this week. <laughs> no, sorry. So in 1987, aged 15 and 14 respectively, Billy and Mike formed a band called... Green Day. Sweet Children. Oh. In the beginning, both Billy and Mike played guitar. And um, this dude, Raj Punjabi, played the drums and this... Other guy, Sean Hughes, was on the bass. And their first show was actually at Rod's Hickory Pit, which is the restaurant where Billy's mother worked. Booked by Billy's mom, 30 people were in attendance. Not the seafood restaurant. No, the the barbecue restaurant where Billy's mom worked. Okay. Raj Punjabi was later replaced on drums by this guy named John Kiffmeyer. And John Kiffmeyer, like, weirdly, they all have, like, kind of alter egos. They have, like fake names which is like kind of a punk thing back in the day um so john kiffmeyer his alter ego's name was called al sobrante not super important just like a weird thing that they all had i already forgot it al sobrante <laughs> you can forget it again it's not that important mike's mother struggled to to provide for him and his sister as a single parent and eventually had to leave rodeo in 87 to look for work and Mike was unwilling to quit Sweet Children, so Billy and Mike convinced each other's parents to allow Mike to move into Billy's garage. He was 15. These are very convincing kids. Right? Yeah. And, I like, like Billy's parents are a blue collar. His dad's a jazz guitarist. Like, I think that they, like, were very supportive of their musical dreams. Okay. Must be nice. I was going to go off on my own sob story, but I decided not to. It's okay. <laughs> Sean Hughes, the bass player, did not have the same dedication, however, and after a few performances, he quit the band, and Mike then began playing bass, and they were a three-piece band. Mike took to the bass. Billy calls him the best bassist in punk rock, and he even got himself a nickname based on the sound that the bass makes. His name is Mike Durnt. Exactly. And so Mike Mike Durnt is like the bassist of Green Day. So this is a, a sweet children recording. It's the three of them, uh, Billy Joe, Mike, and um, 
Al Sobrante slash John Kiffmeyer. Um, and this is their early 1988 demo for a song called Stay. This reminded me of something that was like every time. Like, what is that song? I don't know, but it feels like that. It feels like a late 80s, early 90s proto-grunge song. And Billy Joe's voice sounds the exact fucking same to me. So the fact that he's 16 on this recording is pretty wild. So this was recorded at 924 Gilman Street, which was a really influential DIY like punk club. And Billy and Mike got jobs as security guards, despite them being like really, really small and young. And Mike said, quote, we lived and died for that place. At the time, it meant everything. I can see that. Billy was a big fan of this band called Operation Ivy. I know Operation Ivy. I mean, I remember it from being young. On on kids' t-shirts, yeah. (laughs) So Op Ivy was also formed in 1987 in Berkeley, but they were a bit older than Green Day. And Billy was a big fan. He would sneak into their shows at 924 Gilman because their lead singer's name was Tim Armstrong. And Billy would just kind of allow everyone to believe that they were related. Done that. Yeah. I've I've never had the chance. I've never gone to see Arthur Rubenstein in concert. I was literally going to say, what about you and Art? Yeah, right. <laughs> so Sweet Children played several well-received sets at 924 Gilman. And in 1988, Larry Livermore, owner of Lookout Records, saw the band play. And signed them to his label. In 1989, the band released its extended play EP called 1000 Hours. But shortly before the EP's release, the group dropped the name Sweet Children. According to Larry Livermore, this was done to avoid confusion with another local band called Sweet Baby. All right. So Sweet Children adopted the name Green Day. Green Day. Uh, quote, due to its members' fondness for cannabis. Did not know that. Yeah, the phrase Green Day was slang in the Bay Area uh, for spending a day doing nothing but smoking weed. That sounds I'm having a green boring day. and slightly terrifying. They were, they were 15. <laughs> um, Billy Armstrong once, Billy Joe Armstrong once admitted in 2001 that he considered it to be the worst band name in the world. It's definitely not a good name. No, it's not. I think I have a theory. My friend Billy uh, and I have this theory that all band names suck until you hear them enough times that it just becomes part of the cultural lexicon. Sure. There's no good band name. Can we like test it out? Yeah. ACDC is a bad band name until you have 40 years worth of music to be like, no, they're actually good. But you're saying every band name. Every band name is bad. Think of think of a good band name. Talking Heads. Bad band name until they become drop the the. It's not good. Um, okay, so Pink signing, Floyd. Bad, such a bad band name. Sex Pistols. Bad band and bad band name. Lemonheads is that a band? Lemonheads is a band. <laughs> you know what? You're right. Lemonheads is the only good band name. <laughs> I'm trying here. 
signing to Lookout Records and playing these well-received sets at 924 Gilman encouraged Billy Joe, Billy Joe to drop out of high school and focus his energy on music, which he did on his 18th birthday. He dropped out of high school? On his 18th birthday, yeah. Were you 18 when you were in high school? I did. I turned 18 my senior year. You did. Oh, right. Because you stayed Because I'm like a month and a half younger than you. Did you say I stayed back? <laughs> yeah. Fuck. <laughs> Brutal. So Lookout Records released Green Day's debut studio album, which is called 39 Smooth in early 1990. Green Day recorded two EPs that year called Slappy and Sweet Children, the latter of which included older songs that the band had recorded uh, while they were called Sweet Children. And then in 1991, Lookout re-released 39 Smooth as 1039 Smooth Out Slappy Hours, which is, is like all of the songs combined. This is a lot of words you just said. So they released... The reason I'm bringing this up, they, they recorded a bunch of EPs. They recorded one full length and then they like kept releasing them in different combinations and because of there are so many releases and re-releases and demos at this time getting physical copies of these records is like extremely rare and expensive now okay but uh this is the first song off of 39 smooth the first green day full length called at the library with waba sewaska <laughs> So as you can see on the bottom of this, it says 1039 slash smoothed out slappy hours, which is like the everything. I like this. Yeah. It's like kind of skate punky. I had to go get my airwalks. <laughs> and skank. Yeah. <laughs> skank back to the computer. Yeah. Um, airwalks. Is that company still in business? I doubt it. I don't think so. Last thing I saw them, they were in Payless. Shoe Ooh. <laughs> uh, in late 1990, shortly, shortly after the band's first nationwide tour, John Kiffmeyer, a.k.a. That other guy. Al Sobrante. <laughs> left the East Bay to attend Humboldt State University and uh, the the Green Day got a new drummer named Frank Edwin Wright, who also has a fake name. Everyone knows him as, you know the drummer of Green Day's name? Franks and Beans. <laughs> you would, he, I, he would go with that, actually. It's Trey Cool. Oh, yeah, Trey. Trey Cool, yeah. So Trey Cool's real name is Frank Edwin Wright III. Um, and his story is interesting. He was born in West Germany. He's like an army brat. Mm. Um, and is so that he, interesting? I mean, it's I interesting guess. that someone was born in West Germany, a country that hasn't existed in... In West Germany, born and raised. Keep going. 
Um, and so he filled in temporarily and later permanently. And they like they like called John Kiff Meyer, aka Trey Al Sobrante, and <laughs> Al's Pancake World. And they were like, "Hey, do you mind if Trey takes your spot in Green Day?" And he's like, "No, that's fine." Quote: Kiff Meyer graciously accepted. He was at Humboldt. He was at Humboldt State University. Do you so think he just... regrets that now? We'll see. Okay. But yes. 90, 91 million records. Mm-hmm. Um, Operation Ivy, after breaking up in 1989, sort of reformed as the band Rancid in 1991. And Tim Armstrong actually like considered asking Billy to be their second guitarist, but Billy's own projects were were like taking off by then, so he's like, "I got my own thing going." Guys, I'm a little busy here. Yeah, but like, it's cool that you're like musical hero kind of guy is like, "Hey, come join my new band." That is cool. So, so Green Day was on tour for most of 1992 and 1993, and they played a number of shows overseas in Europe. And by then, they had recorded their second studio album called Kerplunk, and that had sold 50,000 copies in the U.S. So not a lot when we talk about 91 million records, but 50,000 copies. But how significant is 50,000 copies? It's actually extremely significant. So significant that it started a bidding war between major labels. Because it's such a small record label, and this band is like grassroots, basically with very little support, not no support, but very little support getting selling 50K units Mm -hmm. out of nowhere... That they were like, oh, man. Okay, so Kerplunk had an early version, or the first version, let's say, of a really big Green Day hit from a later record, Welcome to Paradise. Welcome to Paradise. So we're going to listen to, this is like one of my favorite things, right? We're going to listen to both versions of Welcome to Paradise. The first one from Kerplunk, which is from Lookout Records. And then the second one is from Dookie, which is their major label debut. And I and they're basically the same song, but I want to do side by side. And we can listen to the difference in mixing, mastering, recording styles, that all that kind of stuff to show what a little bit more money and what a little bit more production can bring to a record. Drum sound far away. The drums sound far away. The vocals are buried. Harmony's a little different. Okay. So so that was just the first little bit of Welcome to Paradise, the the Kerplunk version. Now let's take a listen to the Dookie version. It's not louder. Just everything is a little bit more present. Yeah. 
better. Arm are tighter. Yep. It's just like it's just like slightly better due to all of these like little recordings. <laughs> Great. Green Day supported another California punk band, Bad Religion, as an opener for their Recipe for Hate tour for most of 1993. So, a little digression on Bad Religion. Are you familiar with Bad Religion? Only only in name. Only in name. So, they're, they're a punk band from Los Angeles known for really heady political lyrics. They formed in 1980 alongside other SoCal punk royalty, The Descendants, Black Flag, Social Distortion. These are all punk bands who are really angry, intellectual, and political. Great. And Bad Religion's front man and brainchild is this dude, Greg Graffin. And Greg Graffin has a PhD in zoology. Sweet. Be- being in Bad Religion is like his hobby. And so they broke up for a couple of years in 1980. They were on Epitaph Record. Epitaph Records, which I'm sure you've heard of that record label, that was started by Bad Religion guitarist Brett Gurowitz. Oh. So they released their seventh studio album, Recipe for Hate, in 1993. When grunge looked like it was here to stay, the the band got scooped up by Atlantic Records, which re-released the album, Recipe for Hate, and exposed them to a much wider audience. So... The lead single for Recipe for Hate, a song I got to see live when I was 14, is the song American Jesus. So I want to take a listen to American Jesus by Bad Religion. Don't want to be American Jesus. Ah, it's like you're predicting what I'm, what I'm going to say. <laughs> song rips i love the song i had a slow start for me okay. 
a preacher on TV The false sincerity, the fun that had driven by the big computers And nuclear bombs, the kids with no bombs And I'm fearful that he's inside me Tour supporting Bad Religion for this record. They heard the song every night. Is American Idiot directly inspired by American Jesus? I don't know. I mean, the track listing on Green Day's record, American Idiot, is track one, American Idiot, track two, Jesus of Suburbia. So there's something there. Yeah. But Green Day is still 11 years away from releasing our song of the week, so we'll get there eventually. Kerplunk's underground success, as I mentioned, led to interest from major record labels and a bidding war to sign Green Day. And the band eventually left Lookout Records and signed with Reprise Records, which is a subsidiary of Warner Brothers. After attracting the attention of producer Rob Cavallo, Cavallo had worked with the Muffs, who you might remember from their Kids in America cover from the Clueless soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And Billy Joe later said that Cavallo, quote, was the only person we could talk to and connect with. So this is from Kerrang. Although Lookout Records issued Green Day's first two albums, 39 Smooth and Kerplunk, the band never signed a contract with Lookout Records. And with the trio set to leave for Warner, Larry presented them with a contract that ensured that Lookout would retain their rights to the first two LPs, as well as those EPs that had been recorded for Lookout. And the final clause read, Lookout Records and Green Day agree to treat each other with respect and openness at all times and recognize that while this agreement provides specific guidelines as to what is expected of each other, the truest contract is one based on trust and friendship. And next to his signature, Billy Joe drew a doodle of an amplifier. (laughs) But Reprise Records was a major label. This would mean that Green Day was selling out. They'd alienate the people that believed in them as punk voices of the future. And reflecting on this period, Billy told Spin Magazine in 1999, quote, I couldn't go back to the punk scene. Whether we were the biggest success in the world or the biggest failure, the only thing I could do was get on my bike and go forward. Okay. So this was a big deal in the Bay Area punk scene. So much so that they got banned from playing at 924 Gilman the place that meant more to them than anything else in the world because they signed with Warner Records. So on September... This has always been like the conundrum of punk. Yeah, but (laughs) for me, Green Day specifically. Okay. Because they're the the best-selling quasi-punk band in the world. But yes, you're right. The, the punk in general is has this problem. But on September 3rd, 1993, Green Day played their last show at 924 Gilman under the under a fake band name, Blair Hess. Foxborough Hot Tubs. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about Fox, Foxborough Hot Tubs, too. So the band's recording Dookie in 1993. And they go to the same studio that little Billy Joe went to when he recorded Look for Love 
with the Mrs. Fiat? Yeah. <laughs> they they went to like it was on Fiat Records, but they went to the same studio, their same recording studio to record Dookie as he did when he was five years old. Fancy. So cute, right? Very cute. Do they have both next to each other in there? Like hanging up. <laughs> Look for love. <laughs> and Dookie. Made here. <laughs> Made here. Gold record, <laughs> platinum record, and then just like it went bronze. <laughs> um Moms loved it. Moms live. Ollie Armstrong says two two thumbs way up. <laughs> so Dookie was released in February of 1994, so almost exactly 30 years ago. It became a huge commercial success, helped by extensive MTV airplay for videos for the songs Longview, Basket Case, When I Come Around, all of which reached number one on the rock charts, and the album w- went on to sell over 10 million copies in the US and 20 million copies worldwide. Considering their previous record, Kerplunk, sold 50,000 copies, this was unfathomable for a punk record. And like to when I think about this time period when mm-hmm. like Basket Case was huge, that was also like Sublime time. Yeah, Sublime time, Nirvana time. <laughs> so I'm curious what were the sales on Sublime? That's a good question. So Sublime has 17 million records sold total worldwide, but they only had three albums. All three of Sublime's records do not total just Dookie. Just Dookie. All three Sublime records are 17 million. Just Dookie is 20 million. Okay. Wow. Some perspective right there. Um, the band also joined lineups at Lollapalooza and Woodstock 94, where at Woodstock 94, they started an infamous mud fight. I have to stress, this is not Woodstock 99, which was very violent and rapey and full of fires. This was just like medium violent and rapey. Oh, great. Uh, it's a regular day in America. Just a regular day. Um, this is from Kerrang. Drummer Trey Cool says that the legendary mud-filled gig from Woodstock 94 was a gig that, quote, changed our whole lives. 94 Woodstock was a complete shit show. It was a Pepsi-sponsored thing. It was like worldwide televised pay-per-view and all that stuff, and every band of significance was there. It was crazy. And, of course, people start going around the fence and sneaking in and became kind of mayhem. And then bad weather came in, and it was raining like crazy, and the whole place became a mud pit. It was pretty chaotic and set up really well for Green Day to take the stage and make all hell break loose. All of a sudden, a mud fight started happening, and they were throwing it on stage, and we were throwing it back, and it got all chaotic. We kept trying to play, but Billy was getting mud hitting his guitar, and Mike was getting it on his base and hitting him luckily my drum set was just far enough back where i was less in harm's way it was punk as fuck and no one expected it to happen mike actually got tackled on stage by a security guard because he was covered in mud and the security guard didn't know who was who and they tackled mike and broke his tooth and chipped his elbow it was pretty gnarly if you see the video the guy grabs mike and slams him down he's a big ass security guy I tried to find Covered the video. In mud isn't that a band? Puddle of mud. I sat <laughs> next to the the singer of Puddle of Mud on an airplane once. He How sucked. Did you even know who he was? Did so, he tell you? No. Was he like hey. I, it, even better. 
So I was flying from L.A. to Philly or Boston or something, and we had to stop in Cleveland. And I was sitting next to this guy and his kid, and he looked like the singer of Puddle of Mud, but I wasn't sure. And I was like, he was in coach, but he was being a real dick, and he was like asking people to move so his friend could come back and sit with him. And he was flirting with this um, the, this flight attendant. And as we were getting off, he was he was like right next to me so he was right in front of me as we were leaving the plane and he uh was talking to the lady and being like oh yeah yeah i'll like maybe see you later blah 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 and he walked off the plane with his son who had long stupid hair like him and i just kind of give the flight attendant like a look like what's going on what and she just goes puddle of mud fuck yeah dude <laughs> he's also famously the guy that like had a freak out on stage about uh he thought he saw the lawyer that like took his house and his divorce or something at a show and he like stopped playing he's not a well man anyway here is a video from woodstock 94 of green day playing burnout in the mud this song is dedicated to everyone in 69 this song's called burnout You can see people throwing like giant clods of mud. And Mike on the bass, like, is dressed like a, just a normal dude. So I understand how a security guard might be like, this guy's not in a band. <laughs> I thought there was going to be more mud. There is a lot of mud. I remember it happening. Like, I remember seeing it on the news. But there, there eventually is a lot of mud. And you can see the whole set on YouTube. And they re-released, for like some Record Store Day thing, they re-released their set on vinyl. Their live Woodstock set on vinyl. Which I recommend you get from Newtown Book and Record in Newtown, Pennsylvania. Um, so this was viewed by millions of, on pay-per-view. And... Woodstock 94 further aided Green Day's growing publicity and recognition. In 1995, Dookie won the Grammy for Best Alternative Album, and the band was nominated for nine MTV Video Music Awards, including Video of the Year. So you have some stuff to say about Dookie. <laughs> Tell me. Just some anecdotal stupidity. Mm-hmm. Sure. So Dookie means... Poop. Poop. And... Do we know how that came about? No, I think at this point they're like very juvenile, a la Blink-182, right? I mean, they're like a three-piece punk band that replaced their drummer after their first record. So like there there are lots of comparisons, but I think they also like were very juvenile um, in their content. For sure they were. Um, but there used to be this All Fruit commercial what is all fruit? which was a type of jam and it would it was like all these stuffy people sitting around a table it was like a great poop on commercial but it uh-huh. wasn't it was yeah all sure fruit. and they're like please pass the all fruit may i have the all fruit and then there's this guy that's like can i have the jelly please pass the all fruit pass the polenta all fruit pass the polenta all fruit would you please pass the jelly 
Polan or all fruit is real fruit, sweetened only with fruit juice. You'll call it delicious. You'll call it remarkable. But please, don't dare call it jelly. Oh, I remember this commercial. <laughs> so, you know, just being young and immature, my friends and I, like, recreated it with, like, dookie. Can I, can I have the dookie? Um, but it was, like, past the dookie, and then it was like, can I have the shit? Or something like that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I like that the dookie was the fancy word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, can, uh, can I have the shit is definitely going to be the lead off to this episode. <laughs> Um, okay, but at home, there you go. following Dookie's success, the band felt a sense of unwelcoming in the Bay Area. Billy recalled aggressive glares and furtive whispers. The band's success would trickle into other East Bay bands like Jawbreaker, um, a local favorite of Billy Joe's, and it garnered them accusations of selling out during a concert that Billy attended. So just by the fact that Billy was at a concert, people were like, these bands are sellouts. Wow, so he's so hated. He's so hated. He's just a sellout, right? In 1995, also, like, I don't necessarily, I don't subscribe necessarily to, like, the idea of sellouts. In this case, I'm just saying what they're thinking. The fans. Yeah, the, the, the former fans. So who are the new fans? Because they obviously have a lot. So kids, right? There's like a lot of other people. They 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 made this kind of quasi punk very mainstream. So like kids in my elementary school, right? We all like to jukey. Instead of wearing Metallica and ACDC shirts, the like second gen Beavis and Butthead kids are wearing Nirvana and Green Day T-shirts. Sure. In 1995, a single entitled J.A.R. from the Angus soundtrack was released and debuted at number one on Billboard's rock charts. This is specifically for friend of the show Jim McDevitt, who loves the movie Angus more than life itself. And we've talked about J.A.R. on Blink-182 episode? I believe so. We've talked about the Angus soundtrack specifically and J.A.R. Because I think that that when they wrote... um, What's my age again? What's my age again? Is a is a JAR rip. Yes. Riff, yes. Riff rip. Yes, that's correct. Um the fourth studio album Insomniac, which Lindsay says that sucked, was released in fall of 1995 and compared to the kind of melodic punk of Dookie, Insomniac was much darker and a heavier response to the band's newfound popularity. It got a warm critical reception. It, it earned Four out of five stars from Rolling Stone. And Rolling Stone said, In punk, the good stuff unfolds and gains meaning as you listen without sacrificing any of its electric haywire immediacy. And Green Day are as good as the stuff gets. Wow. That's how you know they're sellouts. Yeah, right. When Rolling Stone is like, (laughs) they're the best punk. (laughs) Uh, the singles from Insomniac are Geek Stink Breath, Stuck With Me, Brain Stew, Slash Jaded, and Walking Contradiction. Let's take a quick listen to Brain Stew. Oh, yeah, this song was okay. Yeah, this song's Maybe okay. Maybe it was all the albums after this one. You're, I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> I'm having trouble trying to sleep. Okay, so this is this is a fun song. We know the song. 
until I try. I'm not there yet, but yes. But I want to. I want my own. Here we go. And this song kind of takes kind of uh, like a grunge sensibility where it's the same riff and it just gets louder and louder throughout the song. This album did not come close to the success of Dookie. It only sold 3 million copies in the US, which is still triple platinum, but you know. Nimrod followed in 1997 and it was even less well received than Insomniac and even more of a departure from their punk roots. It did it did contain one of their biggest all-time hits, the acoustic the acoustic ballad Good Riddance parentheses Time of Your Life. Ugh. Up until that point, Good Riddance was the only Green Day song to not have a drum beat in it. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, right. So here is the video. So what did Trey do? Just hung out, man. <laughs> I think there was a violin. I don't think Trey played the violin. There is was like there there's a quartet. Some yeah, there's there's a string quartet. Um all right, here is Good Riddance Time of parentheses Time of Your Life. Veterans. Another turning point, a fork stuck in the road. Tom grabs you by the rest to so you where to Everyone go. knows this song. So make the best of this test and don't ask why. It's not a question, but a lesson learned in time. It's something yes. unpredictable. Millennials especially had a lot of feelings. We'll, t- we will talk, we'll talk about the, the chokehold this had on millennials. <laughs> but this song went to number 11 on U.S. radio songs, Billboard U.S. radio songs, number 4 on Adult Alternative, number 11 in Top 40, number 2 on Alternative Airplay, number 7 Mainstream Rock, number 13 on Mainstream Top 40, and for the decade 2010 to 2019, so two decades after this song came out, it was number 4 on U.S. Top Airplay spins from Nielsen Music. Number four. Because every year at graduation, people whip it back out. Just fucking. Or like any tragedy. Main, mainline this fucking song. You know so, how people are like, oh, write a Christmas album. Like yeah, people yeah, yeah. are like, write a tragedy song. <laughs> write a graduation song. <laughs> so it, so interesting. We could do like a whole episode on this song, but I don't want to. Billy Joe actually wrote Good Riddance. In 1993, before Dookie came, um, before they even recorded Dookie, about his girlfriend named Amanda, who moved to Ecuador, and he named the song Good Riddance to show his anger toward her leaving to go to Ecuador. She, like, moved to the Peace Corps. Amanda uh, produced and distributed her own fanzine and was, quote, an iron-willed feminist, which enthralled Billy Joe, but Amanda was unimpressed with him. And they dated for some time. She ultimately left to join the Peace Corps in 1994. And this left him feeling suicidal. He was really, really upset. And he has written many songs about Amanda during their relationship, about during their relationship and afterwards, including Good Riddance, She, Stuart and the Ave, Sassafras Roots, Amanda, She's a Rebel, Extraordinary Girl, and What's Her Name, which is from the American Idiot album. So the character of What's Her Name on the album and in the Broadway musical is based on Amanda. She really fucked him up. She really fucked him up. And 
he's with a uh, a girl named Adrian who he married in 1994 and like they've been together ever since. So this was, I think one of the, one of the final like horrible relationships that he had, but he didn't show the song to his bandmates until the Dookie recording sessions in 1993. And the song was determined to be too different from the rest of the record. Um, so it wasn't included on Dookie and producer Rob Cavallo was unsure how to structure this recording to make it sound like the rest of the album. But sure. there is a early version. Yeah. It's in a different key and it's faster. Um, and it's on a B, it's a B side to the European single version of Brain Stew. Okay. So this is the early version of Good Riddance. It's like Gin Blossom. Yeah. Which makes sense when it's 1993. <laughs> so there's no strings in this. It's just him and the guitar. The vocals are exactly the same. I think this is a I think this is fine. I mean obviously the the Nimrod version is very popular. And, you know. Uh so even though Nimrod only sold a little over a million units, just the good riddance single went five times platinum in the United States. It was wow. a gi- it was a gi- gigantic hit. And I, like I said, I still kind of think the song is good and maybe should have been Green Day's last. We can discuss that. In Thousand the, percent. Right? As, especially if in an alternate universe, Good Riddance makes it onto Dookie. It could have goosed the sales of this already massive album and made Nimrod like a real fucking dud. But like inc- that, that would have ensured that every hit Green Day song until American Idiot comes out was on Dookie. Right? Every sure. good Green Day song is on on Dookie or was written at the time of Dookie. Well, the one we just heard was not. Oh, Brain Stew? Yeah. Bama, yeah, I Brains. feel like they're gonna bleed. I mean, I could, I could live in a world without Brain Stew. Um, okay, <laughs> so in 2000, Green Day released a folk punk-inspired sixth studio album called Warning. And on it was their first overtly political song. Because... Remember, we're trying to figure out when Green Day went woke. Oh, we are. That's that's our that's our uh, our, our goal for today. Our mission of the day. Oh, right. You know the song, right? Yeah. I pledge allegiance. Yep. yep. Here it is. I also don't think the song is full. Um, it's not. In 2020, Billy told Rolling Stone, After Time of Your Life, I started getting into playing more acoustic guitar, and I really wanted to have more of that 
for warning. And there was also a, a lot of kind of bad pop punk that was starting to happen. And I wanted to go against that genre. Woof. You can't. This felt like the next step. I had been getting into listening to more of the Kinks and the Who, who found a lot of power in acoustic songs and used the guitar almost like a drum. Pinball Wizard is so percussive. I agree with that. I wrote this right before the election between George W. Bush and Al Gore. I started feeling the political wheels starting to turn toward conservatism a little bit. And I think that song is about about declaring that you're stepping out of line you're not part of the sheep and trying to find your own individualism it felt like we were diving into something that was more conceptual for sure I just don't I don't feel like musicians being political is novel this is just another thing like the war on Christmas for Fox News bobbleheads to complain about it's true quick lyrical reading I want to this is the first lines of the song I want to be the minority I don't need your authority down with the moral majority because I want to be the minority. Um, Is this like a reference to moral panic? No. Do you know what the moral majority was? Okay. So the moral majority was an actual organization made up of conservative Christian political action committees, which campaigned on issues um, and its personnel believed it was important to remain to, to like maintain the Christian conception of moral law. It was founded by friend of the show, Jerry Falwell. Mm. The moral majority opposed the 1962 Supreme Court decision Engel versus Vitale, which forbade government written prayers in public schools. So every time there is this like prayer in school debate when we were growing up or like 10 commandments outside of a courthouse thing, that was them. Uh, they also opposed the the historic 1973 Roe versus Wade decision, which legalized abortions, and condemned the equal rights amendments and gay rights. So just like hmm. incredible work on all on all fronts. Um but back to Billy's quote for Rolling Stone. He says, I'd like to go back and re-record that album. It was right when Pro Tools started happening, and I want to go back and do everything more live because I think minority, minority live is much better than it came out on the album. But that's just one of those things that you think about too much. So this is something, this speaks to something that you said at the beginning of the episode, which is like all their songs kind of sound like blit after a certain time. So this has a lot to do with tape versus digital recording. Before the 2000s, you'd you'd record and mix things on analog, on tape. And this has limitations on how many layers of tracks you can have on your song, as well as like certain imperfections, distortions, delays, speed changes, all that stuff. And in 2000, around, all of this went away. You could record things directly into a computer. You could use drum sample libraries to replace drum sounds. You could make them sound perfect exactly the way you wanted. You could even nudge notes that were played out of time or off pitch to make them perfect. And the result we know now can be this kind of uncanny valley where the music sounds completely airless and lifeless. This is what Mm -hmm. Billy's talking about here. And unfortunately, this quote is from 2020. So it's not like they fixed this with their following records. And so I think basically every album that they have recorded past Nimrod, which I kind of like, falls victim to this problem. Mm-hmm. It is just completely sterile. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But 
All Music gave Warning, the album, 4.5 out of 5, saying, quote, Warning may not be an innovative record per se, but it it is tremendously satisfying. Rolling Stone was more critical, gave it a 3 out of 5, saying, Warning invites the question, who wants to listen to songs of faith, hope, and social commentary from what used to be Snotcore's biggest selling band? Faith and hope? Yeah, so I think that it was like a little bit of a political, like they were like growing up a little bit on this record. They were talking about politics and the world and faith and hope and all this other stuff. Faith, like God? I think like the faith in humanity. Okay. But still, Rolling Stone bumped up against the idea that Green Day was growing up. So Green Day stars fading. They had a good 10-year run. They released a couple of compilation albums, International Super Hits and Shenanigans in 01 and 02 shenanigans was like b-sides and stuff and it included a song they did for austin powers the spy who shagged me horrible movie so maybe the people that were raging at them for selling out were onto something (laughs) most charitably at this point green day was a band who did not really know what they wanted to say i had that international super hits album i think it was because i got one of those like if you send in a penny you can like pick 20 cds Sure. But but think about it this way. Dookie sold 20 million copies and their greatest hits album was being offered to people if you sent them a penny. Right. Right. Like that like they are over. Right. And so in 2003 to make matters worse, in 2003 the band was nearly finished a new album called Cigarettes and Valentines and the master tapes were mysteriously stolen from the studio. Billy said that the album's materials was, quote, good stuff. Musically, the material on Cigarettes and Valentines was hard, quick-tempoed punk songs in the vein of Kerplunk and Insomniac, and the sound would have contrasted the group's previous two studio albums, Nimrod and Warning, which displayed more folk punk and rock genres. Mike Dirnt described the band's decision of returning to the sound found on their old albums stating we had a nice break from making hard and fast music and it's made us want to do it again right okay but who would do such a thing and steal the tapes good question two days so are they like we just gave it up like we never re-recorded it they're Tell me, in- oh you're on the journey now baby <laughs> so to date only the title track cigarettes and valentines has ever been released so this is cigarettes and valentines Oh God, epilepsy. So But I want to point out that the composition of the song sounds like whatever. It sounds like a dookie or like a kerplunk. But the production is still so sterile. Yep. And it just turns me the fuck off. So Green Day would later call the theft 
a blessing in disguise, believing the album was, quote, not Maximum Green Day. One of them stole it and buried it in a time capsule. Mike admitted that there were backups of the tapes, but, quote, it just wasn't the same as the original. And eventually the tapes were recovered. So... I agree. This all kind of smells to me. And Green Day is known for doing wacky shit. They have a bunch of side projects which are just Green Day under different names, like that play the the band that they played their last show at 924 Gilman. You mentioned the Foxborough Hot Tubs. And there was also this band around the same time in 2003 called The Network, which claimed to not be Green Day. And they were like fighting with each other in the press. And then The Network came out with this with this record called Money, Money 2020, which everyone thought was just cigarettes and Valentines. Hmm. So I have no evidence, but I think the tapes got stolen once Green Day realized that they didn't want to release cigarettes and Valentines so they could tell the record label that they had to start over. Okay. But yes, ultimately the band. So was the network Green Day or not? Yes. Absolutely, they were. (laughs) But I don't know if the Money, Money 2020. So were they like emailing the press? They the press were was like, it wasn't Billy Joel who told me this. So yeah, it was the network would would uh, had like masks. So there's like a video for a network song, which is like not very good. And they were like a little bit more new wavy, but they played in masks, and uh, they would like snipe at each Green Day, and the network would snipe at each other in the press. It's very silly. This is so stupid. So. Okay, the band decides against re-recording Cigarettes and Valentines and instead starts from scratch. So here's where things get really fucking weird. So Billy's driving around in his car, presumably with the stolen master tapes for Cigarettes and Valentines (laughs) in his trunk. And he hears, of all things, a new Leonard Skinner song on the radio. Great. The song is called That's How I Like It. Now, so, something you may or may not know about Leonard Skinner is three of their members died in a fucking plane crash in 1977. So it's a little weird that they were still releasing songs in 2003. <laughs> Was it Green Day pretending to be Leonard Skinner? <laughs> that's actually great. That's a, that's a good idea. So Wikipedia lists six current members of Leonard Skinner and 21 former members. The lead singer is the dead old singer's brother. And only one of the original Skinner members is currently in the band. His name is Ricky Medlock. And he is in the band now because he left the band in 1972 and came back in 1996. Is this the inspiration for Almost Famous? Um, I, We are going to do... I am going to quote Almost Famous later. <laughs> okay. But yes, the the... No, the plane crash thing is a real thing that happened oh, that when did happen Cameron Crowe Crow was Crow. yeah. on the plane with Led Zeppelin or The Who or something. So in 2003, when this song was released, there were two original members of Leonard Skinner in Leonard Skinner, Ricky Medlock and keyboardist Billy Powell. And we've talked about this ship of Theseus problem on the show before. Is like, is this actually Leonard Skinner? I don't fucking think so. Let's take a quick listen to... Leonard Skinner in 2003 with That's How I Like It. That's the way, uh-huh, uh-huh. I knew it. I fucking knew, knew that you were going to do that. <laughs> this sounds like a TV show riff. Yeah. 
like uh, Yellowstone. <laughs> so talk about overproduced. Right. This is just like the way we made rock records at this time. Is just completely fucking airless. I hate this. Toxic masculinity. Why would you say this? Yeah, I wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> wouldn't change a thing except reverse Roe v. Wade. Oh my god. What? <laughs> no, no, you're. This is this is where you're gonna get really gonna fucking triggered. Okay, great. Tell me this guy died in a drunk driving accident. Nope. Still just doing it. He choked on an American flag. <laughs> so Billy Joel heard this and then he had to write American Idiot. Mm-hmm. Okay. So first we're going to do a dramatic <laughs> reading of the lyrics to That's How I Like It by oh, Leonard, no. by like zombie Leonard Skinner. So so I'll, I'll start. Let me tell you, where I come from, it's Bix and Gravy, not Champagne Caviar. Got pickup trucks, ain't no Mercedes, that's who we are. Ain't, I ain't no saint, sometimes a sinner, and I can't tell you why. But every morning, but I get up every morning and thank the man above. Let me tell you how good. You're going to make me say this part. Hell yeah. Oh my God. Like my women hot and my beer ice cold. Who doesn't? A real fast car and my whiskey old. Like a slow drive down an old dirt road. That's how I like it. Wait, you like a fast car driving slowly down a dirt road? What a loser. I like to turn my music way up loud. Ain't nothing better than the sound of a crowd. American flag, it makes me proud. That's how I like it. Ain't no cell phone towers. You won't catch me online. Working with my hands for hours is how I spend my time. And I don't stand in line for coffee. It ain't my cup of tea. Out here in the country, we got everything we need. Ooh, woo, yeah. And this is, and that's it. They that's, they just ain't nothing better than a Skinnerd crowd. Yeah, American flag. It makes me proud. That's how I like it. So, this is one of the worst dog shit songs I've ever heard in my entire life. But like, if you had a time machine, would you go back in time and like prevent the plane crash, <laughs> the discovery of America? Yeah, kind of. So, Billy Joe thought the same. He said, quote, it was like, I'm proud to be a redneck. And I was like, oh, my God, why would you be proud of something like that? That's exactly what I'm against. So this eventually led to the creation of their 2004 song and album, American Idiot. So from Kerrang, 
When Green Day convened on April 18th, 2003 at Ocean Way Recording in Hollywood to begin the task of making their seventh album, the studio caught fire. It did? Yeah. The band retreated to the hotel in Hollywood at which they were- Women were too hot. Too hot. Beer was too ice cold. (laughs) And according to Trey, we went and partied. They did this so often that their activities drew complaints from neighboring guests at the hotel, unimpressed at the Oaklanders' habit of playing bands such as X and the Psychedelic Furs at skull-denting volumes. Skull-denting. During the mixing of American Idiot, Billy Joe shrugged that L.A., quote, is okay once you get used to it, and the band did get used to it by staying in L.A. during the week and flying home to the Bay Area on weekends. This is the exact opposite of the working arrangements during the stage at which the trio were demoing the new songs, a process that took place at Jingletown Recording in Oakland. Rob Cavallo was told, this is paraphrasing, Rob Cavallo was told by Warner Records to devote an entire year to making this record and only this record. That's how important it was to Warner. Quote, I just had a feeling about American Idiot, Rob says. I don't know. When you hear a record that's important and that is resonating, it's almost as if a bell goes off in your head. It's just a funny feeling that I get. You can feel it in your body. I just knew that when we released it. I feel it in my fingers. I feel it in my toes. Feel it in my toes. Christmas is all around us. (laughs) Uh, I just knew that when we released it, people were going to respond and explode. I had this feeling of electricity in, I had this feeling of electricity in my body that was as intense as any I'd had before. The only time I had it like that was on Dookie. His spidey senses. Yeah, his spidey senses were tingling. Um, so confident was Rob of American Idiots fighting chances that in his capacity as senior vice president of A&R for Warner Brothers Records, he convened a meeting of the label's staff and told them, quote, okay, we have an album that we've made. It's a punk rock album, and I think it's the greatest piece of music that we'll put out all year. And then to all these people, Rob said, we're going to sell one million records in the first week. We're going to send we're going to sell 10 million records by the time we're done. And what other music were they putting out that year? Warner Records? I don't know. A fucking ton of shit. It's yeah. Warner Records. Usher. Yeah, Usher. They're, oh, Green Day and Usher have some beef. <laughs> we're going to talk about that later. So finally American, Idiot, finally, American Idiot was released in September of 2004, and it debuted at number one on the Billboard charts, backed by the success of the album's first single, called American Idiot. And it was the first Green Day album to reach number one on the Billboard charts. It was labeled a punk rock opera, and it follows the journey of the fictitious Jesus of Suburbia, and the album depicts modern American life under the control of an idiot ruler who lets people be misinformed by the media and a, quote, redneck agenda, and it gives different angles on an everyman, modern icons, and leaders. It was released two months before George W. Bush was reelected, and the album became protest art. Rob guaranteed that it would sell 10 million records by the time we're done. How many records do you think that they sold? 20 million. 15 million. (laughs) I had American Idiot. I listened to it a lot. I knew that there was like a loose plot or like that it like was like this kind of rock opera thing. You knew it was a rock opera. Well, from from the press of it, (laughs) like everyone told me that there was a story, right? 
but I, I listened to it so much and I had to look up the plot on Reddit. So this is from Reddit user Robert Johnson 276. Basically, it boils down to the Jesus of suburbia feeling bored and alienated in his hometown, Jingletown, which is also the name of the studio that they recorded in. And he moves to the city with his girlfriend, what's her name? Or he meets her there, not sure on that detail. While there, he parties and gets fucked up a lot, but he doesn't find any meaning in it. And then he meets Saint, a character named Saint Jimmy, who is really just an alternate personality for himself. And Saint Jimmy is cool, charismatic, and reckless. And he uses this Saint Jimmy alter ego as an excuse to continue with his bad habits, drinking, drugs, etc. And he thinks of himself as the savior of the poor, alienated kids in the city. What's her name? Eventually gets sick of his act and the constant partying. So she leaves the city and him because she doesn't like the person he's become, St. Jimmy. What's her name? Leaving him is what makes him realize that he's gone down a dark path that he shouldn't have. So he metaphorically kills St. Jimmy and moves back to his home in Jingletown. Okay. A modern Grinch story. Yeah. I'd, I don't have time to get into this, but I am not blown away by this plot. No. And for something that starts so strongly political, it doesn't really smack of a protest album either. Even though if you look at the music videos, even for the one for Wake Me Up When September Ends, which is about Billy's dad dying, it's all about fucking war. That's so, on the rock opera. Yeah, yeah. Wake Me Up When September Ends is on American Idiot. And the video for it is like about this this young boy going to fight in Iraq and then dying. Okay. But American Idiot, definitely, the song, definitely is political. And it's taking direct shots at George W. Bush and at the way America was acting right after 9-11, Freedom Fries, etc. So American Idiot says, this is like the blurb. American Idiot says that mass media has orchestrated paranoia and idiocy among the public, citing cable news coverage of the Iraq war. This is Billy's quote. They had all these Geraldo-like journalists in tanks with soldiers getting the play-by-play, and Billy felt that with that, American news had crossed the line from journalism to reality television, showcasing violent footage intercut with advertisements. Terror, terror, terror. 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 We're on to evildoers. (laughs) Mike felt that people might be insulted by the track American Idiot until he realized, quote, Rather than it being a finger-pointing song of anger, it could be viewed as a call for individuality. Okay. I have feelings about this, too. This is this is very much like Republicans buy sneakers, too. Shit. We don't want to offend anybody by this. Well, it's not offensive. It's a call for individuality. Okay, man. But wasn't the other song the one that was saying sheep, the sheep stuff? Uh-huh. Not this one. But this one, too. This one's just like your redneck agenda. Yeah, but be an individual. I didn't hear that. It's there. We're going to do a lyric in a second. <laughs> so Billy Joe told Spin Magazine in November of 2004 regarding the American Idiot album, quote, it's about the confusion of where we're at right now. My education was punk rock. What the Dead Kennedy said, what Operation Ivy said, it was attacking America, but it was American at the same time. What the fuck? I can't say what I'm thinking. Say what you're thinking. No. Okay. So <laughs> this is so this is no longer a huge secret, but this is this is what I wrote in my notes. Now it's time to, for me to tell you my secret. I don't like this song. The song sucks. 
It it kind of does. And I don't know what it is about the song. I, I don't, don't I don't like it. It's not the Dead Kennedys. It's not Operation Ivy. My guy, do not compare yourself to those bands. Performative stupidity. Like it's just as bad as the Skinner song, but you think because you're on the other side that it's somehow more impressive, but it's literally just as bad. <laughs> and once again, I know Lindsay Lindsay is always like, I got to the point ten pages before you, but yes, this is this is the point of the episode. Okay. So part of the idea that so so now that we get into the fucking my my takedown of why I don't fucking like I I think this record is okay. I've there are other songs on this record I like, but part of the idea that Green Day has abandoned their punk roots is the very idea that they em- embraced the digital recording a little too early and their albums sound very sterile but this one is i think borderline the next album 21st century breakdown i find unlistenable and even though the message and the delivery aren't always dependent on each other many people me included are more likely to listen to someone talk about politics the politics of the little guy if it sounds like it was recorded in a basement and we hear the we hear the money on the record which may make the author seem hypocritical, but also there is a perceived immediacy to these imperfectly recorded records. And these days in 2024, many artists are doing everything in the box. In the box is like everything's no real instruments. Everything's digital, right? Take a look at any singer on TikTok and other bands, my own included are going back to this other direction. Now recording things on tape, recording live in an echoey studio and even in the box, artists are doing their best to represent the imp- the imperfections of recording live, right? They're putting in tape hiss and echoes and off-time things and making it sound a little bit more human. Does this recording uh, technique, this this kind of un, un, unhappy for me recording technique, actually mean that Green Day are sellouts? I don't know. But I I think that their message is a little diluted by the sterility of the recordings. But like I said, there are other songs on this album that I like. I think Holiday and Boulevard of Broken Dreams and Wake Me Up When September Ends are good songs that I don't love the production on. But I think that they're good songs. I think there's also, for me, this level of like, okay, so like you had your like grungier garage sound when you were young and mm-hmm. that was appealing for all the reasons that we've already talked about. But now it's 20 fucking years later, my dudes. Like if you want to be around, you still have to evolve. You can't just be like jerking off in the fucking garage and making the same like remedial music that you were <laughs> making when you were a kid. Yeah, yeah, only with a ton of money. Right. Like like there's so I I think that there's actually something um romantic about doing it the same way you did when you were 16 years old if you're using the same tools if you but also if you evolved musically like all these sounds sound the fucking same billy joe's me billy joe's singing makes me want to my eyes bleed because <laughs> it's the same fucking thing yeah yeah it sounds the same as he did when he literally when he was 15 years old but but this song in particular really rubs me the wrong way and and I think you hit it on the head, this performative politics, right? So, like, on paper, I agree with all these politics. And to break down the difference, I want to go back to that song, American Jesus, the Bad Religion song that we listened to from 11 years earlier. 
The sure. music is a, a very different. I find the song a bit catchier, but I want to do a lyrical comparison, which is not something we do often on this show. But first, let's do uh, a dramatic reading of the first overtly political song on our on the American Idiot record, American Idiot. Don't want to be an American idiot. Don't want a nation under the new media. And can you hear the sound of hysteria? The subliminal mindfuck America. Welcome to a new kind of tension all across the alien nation. It should be Aryan nation, guys. Come on. Where everything I is. There was some hidden meaning. I'm like, what? what it's is not. This? There's fucking not, not. Where everything isn't meant to be okay. In television dreams of tomorrow, we're not the ones who are meant to follow, for that's enough to argue. What? Here's well, so here's the here's a whoa, big a big couplet. I didn't even know there was. Yeah, because it's always ble- it's always bleeped out. <laughs> well, maybe I'm the Fsler, America. That makes like my stomach just like actually twitched. Oh, we'll like, talk about it. We'll talk. I I got receipts. I got receipts on receipts on receipts. Uh, I'm not a part of the redneck agenda. Now everybody do the propaganda and sing along to the age of paranoia. And then the chorus get welcome to a new kind of tension all across the alien nation. Aryan nation is right there, you fucks. Anyway, right um, okay. One nation controlled by the media. Information age of hysteria. It's calling out to idiot America. Like, it's not wrong, but it's just also so shallow. It's so shallow. So <laughs> let's compare this to American Jesus. I don't need to be a global citizen because I'm blessed by nationality. I'm a member of a growing populace. We enforce our popularity. There are things that pull us, there are things that seem to pull us under and there are things that drag us down, but there's a power and a vital presence that's lurking all around. We've got the American Jesus. See him on the interstate. We've got the American Jesus. He helped build the president's estate. I feel sorry for the Earth's population because so few live in the USA. At least the foreigners can copy our morality. They can visit, but they cannot stay. Only precious few can garner the prosperity. It makes us walk with renewed confidence. We've got a place to go when we die, and the architect resides right here. We've got the American Jesus bolstering the national faith. We've got the American Jesus, overwhelming millions every day. He's the farmer's barren fields, the force the army wields, the expression on the faces of the starving millions, the power of the man, the fuel that drives the clan. He's the motive and the conscious of the murderer. He's the preacher on TV, the false sincerity, the form letter that's written by the big computers, the nuclear bombs, the kids with no moms, and I'm fearful that he's inside me. And so that there, that is sung in counterpoint with, in God we trust because He's one of us. Calm down, cave in. We can redeem. We can redeem your sin. Strong heart, clear mind, and infinitely kind. You lose, we win. He is our champion. And then we've got the American Jesus. And then it ends with a like r- repetitive one nation one under nation. God. Yeah. So that line, I'm fearful that he's inside me, is the entire crux of American Idiot too, right? I don't want to be this person that America has conditioned me to be. And I'm not saying that all protests have to be the same, all protest songs need to be the same. But 
maybe I need you to help me out. Why does American Jesus connect with me so much while American Idiot doesn't? Well, because American Jesus is way more introspective and it it's show it shows and doesn't tell. The problem with American right. Idiot exactly is right. it's just telling. That's exactly right. And and the and the like there is this layer of like irony where he's like I'm great, I'm America like in the song that that is like p- part of the texture of the song that makes it a little bit more interesting to to the irony a little bit more interesting to listen to but i think you're exactly right and the fact that this what this was made during a time of relative peace versus like it's very convenient to come out with an anti-george w bush song in 2004 convenient but not wrong right but yeah very very convenient though yeah but not wrong I, I hate it when um, I hear Republicans always complaining how um, like people in Hollywood or people in sports should just shut up and play. Shut up and dribble. Yeah. Yeah. When, but meanwhile, like they fucking voted for a, a reality. reality TV, and <laughs> and they probably love this fucking Leonard Skinner song from two thousand three, which is by the way, if you told me that that was Jason Aldean's "Try That in a Small Town" from twenty twenty three, I believe you. Right. Um. Yeah, so um, I, I agree with you. And Tyler Clark of Consequence agrees with both of us. This is his quote. The story of 21st century protest music begins in earnest in 2004. That year, the case for the Iraq war fell irreparably apart. The CIA admitted that the United States had faced no immediate threat from weapons of mass destruction before launching their attacks. The grotesque abuses of Abu Ghraib um, became international news. And increased fighting in cities like Fallujah claimed the lives of nearly 7,000 insurgents and 1,000 coalition soldiers, as well as nearly 12,000 civilians. Against this backdrop, the war's architect, George W. Bush, faced his reelection campaign and the chance to not only assert the conflict's righteousness, but to quash questions of his own legitimacy that still lingered after the 2000 election. For artists on the left, the year's events acted as a tipping point, necessitating a response via politically-minded material that, save for acts like Rage Against the Machine, had largely fallen out of favor, uh, largely fallen out of favor in the decade plus prior. Looking back, the results were uneven. The protest-minded records of 2004 generally include lesser entries in legendary catalogs. Bad Religion released The Empire Strikes First. To the Five Burrows uh, was released by the Beastie Boys, and there were compilations Rock Against Bush and the Future Soundtrack for America, as well as a few genuinely good indie releases, Shake the Sheets by Ted Leo and the Pharmacists, and New Roman Times by Camper Van Beethoven. But those never elbowed their way into the greater public consciousness. I think Shake the Sheets is great and was very much in the public consciousness, but whatever. And then there's American Idiot. The album that saved Green Day's career remains, for better or worse, the most viable protest record of the Iraq War. Wow. Which is, I think, true. While political angst of American Idiot remains sadly, undeniably relevant, a fresh spin reminds you that the record's overt political messaging is really only limited to two songs. The title track, American Idiot, and Holiday. Yeah, but I want to look up the lyrics. We can, we can do a quick. He, Holiday's the one where he calls George Bush President Gas Man. Mm-hmm. Sieg Heil to the President Gas Man. Yeah. Which, 
if you want to talk about dead Kennedys, this is inspired by like Holiday in Cambodia or California Uberalis. He like says the representative from California has the floor, even though he's from California yeah. too. It's like, yeah. So this song was. It's funny because I feel like this song was more in the like cultural vernacular than American, American Idiot. Idiot. Interesting. I like Holiday much better. I think it's a better song, and I think that the messaging is better, too. It's less tell and more. Yes, exactly. A Holiday, which Billy Joe Armstrong described in a 2005 concert in Germany as a big fuck you to George W. Bush, leading to Entertainment Weekly's Tom Sinclair to wonder if there's such <laughs> if there's any such thing as a Bush-supporting Green Day fan. <laughs> It's in the record's visuals where America, America's political disquiet comes through the strongest. The story at the album's heart is ultimately a letdown for anyone inspired to action by the record's protest songs. After leaving behind his soulless life in the suburbs, the Jesus of suburbia washes out in the city and has a fight club style run in with a bad influence alter ego, St. Jimmy and tumbles through a chaotic relationship with a manic pixie dream gorilla, gorilla with a U, what's her name, um, and ultimately winds up back where he started working a dead-end job and snuffed of the fire that led to his fight in the first place. And how do we know what's-her-name is Amanda? He j- he's just, just said so it in years later. He's just said if it If I was the wife, I would, I would be mad. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, they've been together for 35 years, so like... I don't know, man. Taken in context, the political anger of songs like American Idiot and Holiday, as well as the protest imagery of the record's additional videos, ultimately gets dismissed as a kind of phase, something that young people do while figuring out their identities before returning to the grind that bore them. The record's bleakness is also rooted in its individualism. Rather than offering a path toward collective action or redemption, American Idiot instead prizes jaundiced distrust of institutions of all kind. It's against all kinds of things, but not for much at all. There's also the issue of the cynical commercialism inherent in any kind of perceived rebellion by a band of multimillionaires and bankrolled by the one percenters that helm a major record label. As comedian John Daly put it in his scathing takedown of American Idiot for the AV Club in 2014, the record could rightly be critiqued as commodification of rebellion made into pure capitalism. They should have to state their worth before singing this song, John Daly said. Why should they, though, if the gatekeepers are fucking keeping the gates? Like, what are you supposed to do? I agree. And, and this it's is not- a problem of the 1% ruling the fucking world. This is the product of capitalism, not the product of one little band breaking through. I agree. And, and with a, with an audience that big, obviously your message is going to be diluted. So like, is that message important or is it like good enough that this, this record is selling 50 million copies and it's like performative political awareness? One Oh one thing. 
conservatives think that well there's two camps of conservatives but <laughs> the conservative elite think that any anyone with money has to be a conservative correct so they can't fucking fathom that millionaires would want equality for people yeah <laughs> yeah from billy joe's perspective Quote, it was very important to me when I was writing the lyrics for American Idiot, the album, that the things I'm singing about are personal. He said this in 2004. So even the things that are political have to have a personal element to them. If they don't, it just doesn't work for me. There are bands that can kind of do that thing. A band such as Rage Against the Machine would be a good example, but I don't know that it would, that it would work for us. We're really invoking, everyone is invoking Rage Against the Machine here as like the only protest band. <laughs> but as you, as you pointed out in your lyrical reading, I want to unpack one particular couplet in the song specifically. Well, maybe I'm the F slur, America. I'm not a part of your redneck agenda. So two songs in a row that use that word for me. Yikes. Mm-hmm. But. Maybe Billy is quoting rednecks or what he believes, he, what he thinks rednecks believe and using like the, the language of the bully, like using the hateful language of the rednecks. I don't know. To unpack this, I turn to Twitter friend and incredible writer, Nico Stratus. Nico wrote the unsung queerness of Green Day lyrics for Catapult in her column, Everyone is Gay. So this is Nico. She, the first song on the b-side of dookie is about a woman fighting to be heard over the expectations others impose on her the first line of the chorus quote are you locked up in a world that's been planned for you planned out for you responded to my concerns of a conventional future the more i relate it the more i associated with the main character i was she and as Billy Joe sang, she figured out all her doubts were someone else's point of view. My consciousness started to piece together the puzzle of my transness. In my head, I would visualize myself as the heroine of Billy Joe's story, and the confusion that plagued my waking life fell away. In my head, I saw myself as trans for the first time, despite not having the words for it. It's on the song Coming Clean that Billy Joe really lays out lays his cards on the table quote i finally figured myself out for the first time now mom and dad will never understand what's happening to me billy joe was billy joe was saying what i was thinking what i hoped and imagined so many of us were thinking that we're all queers though i didn't think i'd unlocked some secret code hidden in the lyrics surely there must have been others like me who recognized themselves in these words i found these hints in songs, partly because I needed to find them, but also because they were right there for me and for anyone else like me to see. That feeling of being broken made sense when I realized it was queerness trying to break the normative walls that had been built around me. The societal expectation that all good kids grow up to be cis and heterosexual. In the ensuing weeks and months, my obsession, I'm sorry, in the ensuing weeks and months of my obsession with the record, I would pick up glossy magazines with green day on the cover and watch interviews waiting for someone some music journalist to ask the question that seemed so obvious to me after hearing the tape were that when were they going to ask about being queer it's all over dookie it was right there in the lyrics printed on the j card you know the j card and the tape 
cassette. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but no one, not Rolling Stone, not Spin, or NME, or Much Music, or even MTV, Much Music's little American cousin, ever asked. Uh, Nico's Canadian. As the album cycle came and went, the conversation I expected never came. Even when Green Day brought Pansy Division, an openly queer punk rock band, as their opener on their first major tour in support of Dookie, the conversation never came. Mainstream culture critics in the 90s, especially in music, wouldn't really touch the idea of queerness as a movement. Gay was a word your mom would whisper, even when there was no one else around, lest it gain too much popularity. It takes a trip to the Internet Archives to find a 1995 interview with Billy in The Advocate where he says outright that coming clean is about being a teenager and realizing that he was bisexual. Billy Joe, Billy Joe Armstrong, bisexual icon. Now that not that you would have known, no mainstream media touched the topic in the mid 90s, maybe due to the casual homophobia permeating all media, maybe due to the lack of queers writing about music in 1995, maybe people didn't want to see this short king wearing eyeliner on stage as anything else but a paragon of some new kind of heterosexuality. <laughs> Billy revisited the subject in 1997 on the album Nimrod. The song King for a Day is about a kid who puts the drag and drag queen. It's a celebration of sneaking clothes from closets you're not supposed to be in, of letting your queerness supersede your parents' desires for you. King for a Day, Princess by Dawn, chants the chorus. At this point, they were all but hitting me over the head with it. Three years after Dookie, puberty was in the rearview mirror. My transness and queerness were an ever-present internal struggle and nimrod was on was the cd that spun in the background as i snuck women's clothes into the bathroom to try on in secret as billy joe sang don't knock it until you've tried it but the song's queerness was treated as a joke king for a day is deliberately whimsical it's boisterous horn section bordering on clownish it's almost vaudevillian letting slapstick tell the story that billy joe had previously tried to tell with a straight face but still widespread silence. The closest I got to a conversation about queerness in Green Day's work was a friend telling me that they were no longer punk enough because they had, according to him, gone F-slur. By this time, Billy Joe was wearing eyeliner fairly regularly in press photos, which led to a shameful period in our collective past where eyeliner became guyliner if a man was wearing it. Billy Billy Joe would continue to wink at queerness here and there. On American Idiot, the album that heralded their return to being multi-platinum selling artists, he sings about being part of the F-slur America. Shockingly, no one ever asked him what that meant. Even though the conversation around queerness looked very different, mainstream music press seemed to lack at the desire to engage with the obvious. It's also worth noting that drummer Trey Cool is also openly bisexual and has been out since the 90s. That is so interesting that it almost seems like a conspiracy to cover it up. Right. And I think (laughs) I I honestly think that Warner Records might be just like, listen, Billy, like we get it. But like, don't really talk about it. It's don't ask, don't tell illegal. It wasn't at the time. (laughs) But in this context, the context of basically admitting his queerness in front of everyone, some part of him begging for that aspect of himself to be noticed, Pro Tools clear as a bell, he screams, maybe I am an F-slur, but I'm not a part of your redneck agenda. Yeah. I just... uh, I get it how there's the taking back of this derogatory language for people who identify with it. I think it's just like like words that have... uh, 
triggering. inspired murder yeah. trigger me. Um, but we didn't talk about um, Basket Case at all, really. We went to a shrink to analyze my dreams. Yeah, she says it's lack of sex that's bringing me down. So I, I went, went to a whore. To a whore. She said my life's a bore. Just quit your whining because it's bringing me down. Bring her down. So, and also I feel like in this context, you can see that that song might be portraying a similar experience. Yeah, and Nico in her piece, which is very well written and just a little bit longer than, significantly longer than what I was able to read, talks about Basket Case as well and and about feeling, you know, Basket Case is very clearly about feeling like a square piece in a in a round puzzle. Yeah. So moving on to the redneck agenda in question. This was Billy's inspiration for the song, after all, hearing that Leonard Skinner song because... And also because this is the one word that he changed to draw the ire of the Fox News sect. Redneck is a derogatory term, chiefly but not exclusively, applied to white Americans perceived to be crass and unsophisticated, closely associated with rural whites of the south of the southern United States. Its meaning possibly stems from the sunburn found on farmers' necks dating back to the late 19th century, and its modern usage is similar in meaning to cracker. cracker especially regarding texas georgia and florida hillbilly especially in the appalachian region and in the ozarks and white trash but without the last term suggestion of immorality but there wasn't really a political designation to the idea of rednecks until the 1970s okay i'm following i'm with you the term had been derogatory slang for like a poor white person but its meaning was expanded to include racism, loudishness, and opposition to modern ways by like 1975. Yeah. So even when bands like Leonard Skinner are calling themselves rednecks in 1972, that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as it does in 2003 when Billy hears that That's How I Like It song. And there's a lot of disharmony among the redneck slash hillbilly community as to whether real rednecks love or hate cops, love or hate the government, love or hate the military, love or hate people who are different to them. I don't really want to get into it because I'm, I can't speak to it, but there is disagreement whether the redneck agenda, as said in the song, is what Billy Joe thinks it is. There's, oh. Cause, cause there are people in Appalachia, there are people down south who are very progressive, very anti-cop, very anti-government, very welcoming to other types of people. And they're not fucking rednecks. But they consider themselves rednecks. And why? Because the definition of redneck up until 1969 or 72 did include fucking 2024. I agree with you. I'm just saying words change meanings over time. And there are people who are still holding on to the, older broader definition of the word redneck i'm just a simple farmer man kind of yeah <laughs> just a simple farmer um especially the i i find this a lot on the internet of of the rednecks who just are like love cops and there are other people who are like rednecks aren't supposed to love cops rednecks are supposed to run moonshine away from the cops um it's all very convoluted it is extremely convoluted but, and even Leonard Skinner, who inspired American Idiot with their song, doesn't have a political political consensus. The current lineup of Leonard Skinner, Johnny Van Zant, evangelical Christian, vocal conservative. Ricky Medlock, also conservative. 
Gary Rossington has said that he used to be liberal and he's gotten more conservative as he's aged. But the original lineup was very liberal. Ronnie Van Zant was a self-professed redneck, but he backed Jimmy Carter in 19, 1976 and famously denounced segregation and denounced the uh, Alabama governor, George Wallace, saying, I don't like what he says about colored people. Evidence of liberal ideas are also found in Leonard Skinner's songs from the 70s, like Saturday Night Special and Things Going On, and the former advocates for gun control and the latter addresses poverty and environmental issues. And both drummer, original drummer Artemis Pyle and guitarist Ed King are on record as being liberals. We could do a whole episode on the Leonard Skinner song Southern Men and the fake feud. I'm sorry, the Neil Young song Southern Men and the fake feud between Neil Young and Leonard Skinner. But that's for a different day. But even though only two of the songs on the record are overtly political, the band didn't shy away from voicing their opinions while on stage. Green Day. Back to Green, Green Day. Day. Back to Green Day. Kerrang. This being a time when America was still 12 years away from electing a commander-in-chief that made George W. Bush look like Gandhi. Kerrang. Email me, man. <laughs> you got to stop this. <laughs> the band were fearless, a stance that was not to everyone's liking. While on tour in support of American Idiot, the al- their new album kicked off in arenas in Texas that were some way away from being full a number of green day's core fans booed the political rabble rousers standing on the stage see also our episode on the chicks who had their entire careers ruined for saying similar yes great episode it is a good episode american idiot won the 2005 grammy for best rock album it was nominated in six other categories including album of the year the album helped green day win Seven of the eight awards it was nominated for at the 2005 MTV Video Music Awards. Boulevard of Broken Dream won. Boulevard of Broken Dreams won six awards that year. A year later, uh, Boulevard won the Grammy for Record of the Year. And in 2009, Kerrang! named American Idiot the best album of the decade. Gross. NME ranked it number 60 in a similar list, and Rolling Stone ranked it 22nd. Rolling Stone also listed Boulevard of Broken Dreams and American Idiot as among the 100 best songs of the 2000s, number 65 and number 47, respectively. In 2005, the the album was ranked as number 420, spark it up, in Rock Hard Magazine's 20 Greatest Rock and Metal Albums of All Time, and in 2012, the album was ranked number 225 on Rolling Stone's list of the greatest albums of all time incorrect yes i agree with you it's worth noting that warning their previous record earned not a single award from anywhere (laughs) (laughs) quote this is billy's quote i think what american idiot has done for us is really change our history in a lot of ways it created a new future for us and it's made all of our albums since dookie make sense for people who weren't up to speed with what we were doing obviously having all of this critical acclaim is a first but that's all. So you see, Lindsay, it's not that the albums were bad or that they didn't know what they were doing. It's that it took American Idiot to make you appreciate how ahead of the, their time they were with all these other albums. It's the, the problem is you, Lindsay, you see? Incorrect. In 2006, grocery store clerk, 
Mm. Paul McPike sued Green Day, alleging that he had written American Idiot and other songs on their album way back in 1992. McPike's evidence consisted entirely of a copy of the album and a claim that the lyrics sung on the album didn't match those in the sleeve notes. What? (laughs) Yeah, the U.S. District Court judge suggested that he could file a more detailed copyright infringement complaint in the future and throughout the case. I could not find a recording of Paul McPike's American Idiot. We'll talk a little bit about Green Day stealing people's songs in a minute. Oh, more of that. In 2009, Green Day released 21st Century Breakdown, which was a spiritual follow-up to American Idiot. Songs from 21st Century Breakdown and American Idiot were used to make the American Idiot stage musical, which opened in 2009 in Berkeley and then hit Broadway in 2010. John Gallagher Jr. of Spring Awakening and The Newsroom played the lead, Jesus of Suburbia. So here's our song of the week as sung by the original Broadway cast of American Idiot. Hell yeah. Nope, don't like it. This looks just like they wanted it to be Rent. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) But like, what the fuck is this? This is is Rent. (laughs) I'm so glad I've never seen this. This... Jonathan Larson's rolling over in his grave. I don't even think Rent is that good. Just, what are what are we doing here, guys? I'm not a musicals person, but this, this seems lame as fuck. That was heinous. I hated it. So, are you a musicals person? I dabble. You dabble. Okay. I'm a musicals person if I like the musical. For sure. I, I really like a few musicals. I like Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which is like I think a really good example of like a, a rock musical. And even Tommy. Um But I think for the same reason that like recording in a shitty basement feels immediate, the level of production, sets, costumes, everything feels like they're selling me something in this. But have you do you have you seen Rent? No. Would I I'm good. I feel like I just need to send you like a rent compilation so you can see exactly how ripped oh, off it is. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I've seen the, I like know the sets. I've seen clips of rent. But even like it looks like, oh, that's Mimi. Oh, there's Angel dying. Like it's the exact same fucking thing. I have seen Spring Awakening and there it also looks like Spring Awakening and I've also seen Tommy and it also looks like Tommy. It's like it is very much just like sponging other <laughs> musicals. Okay. Um but what the fuck do we know? Because American Idiot won two Tonys for costume design and scenic design. Wow. But lost the best the award for best musical to a show called Memphis with music by David Byrne of Talking Heads. Love it. Okay. So in 2012, after an onstage rant at the iHeart Radio Festival, Billy Joe entered rehab uh, and for alcohol addiction. So um, this is... I was considering not showing this, but I think that there is an important point that I want to make. So this is Billy Joe's drunken rant at the iHeartRadio Festival.
want to play a fucking new song. No, Holy we're not shit. right in the middle of basket case. Oh. Oh, Give me a fucking break. One minute left. One minute fucking left. You're going to give me fucking one minute? There's a, look at that fucking sign right there. One minute. Let me fucking tell you something. Let me tell you something. I've been around since fucking 1980 fucking eight. And you're gonna give me one fucking minute? You gotta be fucking kidding me. You fucking kidding me. What the fuck? I'm not fucking Justin Bieber, you motherfuckers. Shots fired. <laughs> Seriously. You gotta I mean, fuck Justin Bieber, but still. Yeah, but Bieber's like, huh? Joke. What? I got one minute, one minute left. Oh, now I got nothing left. Now I got nothing Thanks left. Thanks for wasting it. Let me show you what one fucking minute fucking me. Wow. So he's smashing his guitar uh, very famously. He's got a guitar named Blue, which his mom bought him when he was a kid. Um, that's like a Fender Strat copy this is not the one that he's smashing he would never okay so i have just preferred you finish basket case but okay and and here's where i try to sum up my feelings on green day what does lester bangs and by extension william miller say about stillwater and almost famous it's a think piece about a mid-level band struggling with their own limitations in the harsh face of stardom Mm mm-hmm that's this, right? I think that exactly describes Green Day. Maybe not mid-level, but the band str- has struggled with giving up their punk bona fides in, in the face of selling 90 million records. They sell out. They go digital. They go Broadway. They get banned from the place that used to mean everything to them. But 90 million records means a bigger audience for their political views, even if they're watered down. They're playing at the iHeart Radio exactly, Festival. Exactly, right? So like <laughs> I'm like, yeah, fuck Usher, but like why are you playing at the iHeart Radio Music Festival? Like Clear Channel Parade. Yeah, it's like doesn't make sense <laughs> that you like you like go to the corporate store and are sad that they're selling corporate. Yeah. Um so Green Day was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2015. And a couple days before their induction ceremony, they played the House of blues in cleveland under their original name sweet children Hmm. and they were introduced by their original drummer john kiffmeyer aka al's pancakes al sobrante (laughs) so this was not billed as a green day show this was billed as a sweet children's show and people just showed up knowing that sweet children means green. Okay. And so that's Kefmeyer. You know, we were driving in this morning. We were running a little late. So we pulled over to find a payphone to call the club to tell them we were going to be late. We couldn't find a payphone to save our asses. Where'd they hide all the payphones in this town? So this is 2015. Try the plan. I think he's doing a bit like it's still 1988. Oh, this is just a little too much. Really? No, no, no. You don't have to do that for me. You guys have no idea. 
of who I am. Really, it's quite all right. You can, you can save it for save it for the headliner. Ladies and gentlemen, this is John Kiffmeyer right here. A.K.A. Al Sabrante. Al Sabrante. Okay, ready? Okay, this song's called Don't Leave Me. So this is from the 39 Smooth Al Sobrante era of Green Day. It's like a, it's and like he's from, there playing mm-hmm. for our audio-only listeners. Oh, yeah. For our audio-only listeners, uh, John Kiffmeyer is, is back behind the drums. It's the original lineup of Green Day. So... I have so many complicated feelings about this. Okay. They create fake bands. They play small venues. They potentially steal their nearly complete, fit, completely finished record. They dig up their old drummer before they get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They play a music festival opening for Usher and freak out about it. No one is more conflicted about Green Day's popularity than Green Day. Yeah. Right? Like, I think that they wish that they had never gotten that big i mean maybe but part of them at least you could retire you could retire and they they've tried (laughs) numerous times which brings us back to new year's eve 2024 my galaxy brain is telling me that no one actually cares about this people aren't on twitter are crowing about it because that's what they do i searched far and wide to find Fox News pissing and moaning about it, and I could only find that one clip that we watched. I actually found more clips of resistance libs being like, Fox News is freaking out over Green Day than I did oh. about the actual freakout. So, okay. Lindsay, as usual, figures out the, the message of the episode 10 pages early, and th- <laughs> this is just dipshits dipshitting each other, and Green Day is there to sell records. Even the dipshit pundits on Twitter, like Laura Loomer, are saying Green Day is woke, is like a woke protest ban. They're the same ones that are saying, or they, they think or claim to think that Joe Biden is a real no fool and socialist, which is demonstrably <laughs> untrue. This is from Fox News. Oh. Their New Year's Eve performance wasn't the first, wasn't even the first time that the band's members have performed the songs with the, with, has performed American Idiot with the anti-Trump lyrics. During the 2009... How could it be the first time? Like, right? come on. During the 2019 iHeartRadio Festival, it's insane that they got invited back, Green Day sang the same MAGA agenda lyrics. And during a performance of their other song, Bang Bang, which came out in 2016, during the American Music Awards, Billy chanted, no Trump, no KKK, no fascist USA. The leaders, the lead singers' disdain for Trump and conservative politics and conservative political causes has never been a secret. That same year, Billy Joe Armstrong compared Trump to Adolf Hitler in an interview with Kerrang! magazine. He said, quote, the worst problem I see about Trump is who his followers are. I actually feel bad for them because they're poor working class people who can't get a leg up. They're just pissed off and he's preyed on their anger. He said... Yeah, especially in 2016, we were like kind of believed in this a little bit more. Um, Who's we? 
the America, the, the, the narrative, the, yeah, the narrative was, oh, it's, he's preying on economic anxieties and blah, 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 blah. Um, he's preying on stupid people. He admitted it. Yeah, he did. So, uh, this is Billy's quote. He said, he just said, you have no options. I'm the only, he's talking about Trump. Trump just said, you have no options and I'm the only one. I'm going to take care of it myself. I mean, that's fucking Hitler, man. In between songs in a set in France in 2018, Armstrong spoke to the audience about Trump saying, quote, I fucking hate Donald Trump so much. I used to scream I, fu- I fucking hated George Bush. This one's a little different. This one is bad like the acid has gone bad. Fucking LSD <laughs> and the American right, man. And in response to Roe versus Wade being overturned in 2022, Billy told an audience in London that he was renouncing his U.S. citizenship. He said, quote, fuck America. I'm fucking renouncing my citizenship. I'm fucking coming here. There's just too. I don't think so. There's just too much fucking stupid in the world to go back to that miserable fucking excuse for a country. Oh, I'm not kidding. You're going to get a lot of me in the coming days. (laughs) But Green Day knows how to capitalize on a trend. So this year. In January, they took to the New York City subway with Jimmy Fallon, who famously tussled Trump's hair on his show when he was running for president the first time, to play American Idiot with the not so with the new but not so new updated lyrics. So this is Jimmy Fallon and Green Day uh, in in the New York City subway. Hey guys, I'm in the 50th Street subway station right below Rockefeller Center with Billy Joe, Mike, and Trey from Green Day. The four of us are about to go on the subway platform and start busking in disguise. No one knows that this is going to happen. Nobody knows that it's Green Day. Let's do this. No one knows? You've got a camera crew. You've got instruments, microphones. You've got each one of your drums mic'd. What do you mean no one knows? This is professionally recorded in a New York City subway. That's very obviously Trey Cool with glasses on. <laughs> the fuck are you talking about? No one knows. And why? Why are we doing this? This is my question, right? Because they know how to capitalize on a trend. It's all marketing. This is so cringy to me. Just wait until they rip off their wigs and mustaches. Oh, no. Like, nobody knows that. Like, nobody knows. There's just a random crowd because they love bad companies feel like making love. I feel like Jimmy is the most incognito one. Oh, I was going to say the opposite. Jimmy's like (laughs) really, really bringing sand to the beach here. Oh no, who could this possibly be? Why is everyone got their cell phones out? Let me explain what's going on. Jimmy's mustache is falling off. (laughs) My name is Jimmy Fallon, and uh... I'm so surprised! Oh no! (laughs) Nobody knew. It's Green Day. They have a new album out this Friday, but they're gonna play a classic for you right now. Green Day, ladies and gentlemen! Cool. And they, they sang American Idiot eventually. They did like a whole little set on the subway. 
Uh, I'm conflicted, man. They're a business. Green Day is a business. And they're a lucrative one. They know how to get people's attention. And I think they stand for something. But which We don't have to love them. Which comes first? Yeah, I don't love them. And I've always felt, ever since 2004, really like kind of icky about them. And I couldn't put my finger on why until doing the research for this episode. But this isn't the only controversy that Green Day is facing in 2024. Their 14th studio album, Saviors, came out this week, January 19th. And the fourth single on the record is called One-Eyed Bastard, which was released on January 5th. Let's take a listen. Now, I know I know that you've said that some of their songs feel like they're a pastiche of other songs. Let's see if you can said that. Let's see if you can uh, pick out which one this one sounds like. Oh, no. Come on, Pink. Yeah. (laughs) So. People were quick to point out on people on the internet were quick to point out that it sounds like tooth like Pink's 2008 song. So what? Just wait till I do a Pink episode. I, I really actually love Pink. I like Pink too, and Pink's dad famously or famously among my friends owns a UPS store in my hometown. Let's call him. Yeah. Okay, so. Justin Hawkins of The Darkness pointed out on his podcast that these riffs are very similar and in the same key and Pink's is slightly better, um, but that both of these songs have drawn comparisons to Deep Purple's Black Knight from 1972. Oh, yep. Okay, so I think it's closer to Pink than either of them are closer to Deep Purple. Yes. But as Justin Hawkins of The Darkness put it on his podcast, if you've got a color in your name, you have a similar penchant for riffs. (laughs) Wow, good one. (laughs) So what are we going out on this week, Lindsay? I don't know. (laughs) Well, we know that (laughs) you don't really have a classic song until one thing happens. Weird in 2006, Weird Al Yankovic parodied the song Canadian Idiot on his 2006 album Straight Out of Linwood. Fantastic. Where can people find us on the internet, Find us on the internet at Lyrics for Lunch, on Instagram and Twitter, which I haven't been using because fuck it. Fuck Elon Musk, man. <laughs> uh, for longer and weirder stuff, shoot us an email. We're at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. Let us know what songs you want to hear yeah. on this show. Yeah. Tell your friends about us. Tell your enemies about us. If you know someone who wants... Who might want to uh, advertise on our show? Tell them about us. Sure. Uh, and <laughs> and if you want to support the show, go to leadersforlunch.com and click on support the show. And tune in next week when we do this all over again with another, I th- guess, another band that we're both very conflicted about. It'll be another song millennials love or hate. Wow. 
What a specific <laughs> prediction. <laughs> Until next time, I'm Aviv Rudenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying, don't be an American idiot. Hey!